Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. I'm really, really excited to bring this podcast out. We got a really amazing opportunity to talk to Ben Malcolm, the spirit pharmacist today. And Ben has such a unique experience and a unique perspective on weaving together the sacred and the secular. And more specifically, his you know, experiences in his younger life of like coming to some realizations about like his spirit in general, and then later on in life and becoming, um, taking a lot of schooling and becoming really an expert uh, as a PhD pharmacist to be able to do what he does and to share all of the knowledge and the wisdom that he has. We talk today about better ways to screen clients, things that you might not even think about and how some of the screening that we're doing is not just drug related. Like we look at, well, this drug is contraindicated with this psychedelic or so on and so forth. And he just helped me really zoom out a little bit and look at the bigger picture. We also talked about some of the classes of drugs that might be really contraindicated and maybe even dangerous. And then also some of the other classes of drugs that might just provide a muting or blunting effect to some of the psychedelic experience. And I really think that Ben is following his true path and his true Dharma. And I think that comes through today in the podcast. So a little bit more about Ben, Dr. Ben Malcolm earned his bachelor's degree in pharmacology at the university of California at Santa Barbara prior to his master's in public health and doctorate of pharmacy at Toro university, California. He then completed postgraduate residencies in acute care at Scripps Mercy Hospital and psychiatric pharmacy at the University of California at San Diego Health. After residency, he passed his exam to become a board certified in psychiatric pharmacy. He began his career as an assistant clinical professor at Western University of Health Sciences College of Pharmacy before transitioning to his current entrepreneurial role as a psychopharmacology consultant, psychedelic educator, and founder of spiritpharmacist.com. Ben envisions a society in which access to psychedelic drugs in a variety of safe and supported settings is available for purposes of psycho-spiritual well-being, personal development, ceremonial sacraments, and treatment of mental illness. His focus is on the intersection between psychiatric medications and psychedelic therapies. He has given several continuing education presentations to pharmacists, and other healthcare professionals, as well as published over a dozen articles in peer-reviewed literature relating to psychedelics or psychiatric medications. His vision guides his clinical and his educational service-related professional activity, and I can't wait for you to meet Ben Malcolm. Ben, welcome to Psychedelic IQ. It's really nice to be here, GV. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us today. Um, You are better known as the spirit pharmacist. Uh, and maybe to get us started here, just tell us a little bit about your origin story and like the life that you live today. Ooh, origin story for for me for spirit pharmacist. Let's start with you. Yeah. So 
I was born in Tasmania, Australia, and I moved to Eugene, Oregon when I was 10 years old. I, um, yeah, Eugene, Oregon. It's a, it's kind of a psychedelic town, actually. It's, it's sort of like famous for that in, in, in some ways. Um, but it was really, I would say, like watching reality TV about addiction that, that spiked my curiosity in psychoactives because I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand why someone would choose to give away their life, home, family, job, et cetera, for some like kind of like pile of powder. And then I couldn't understand how drugs that had physiologically opposite properties like stimulants and depressants could converge in this sort of like behavioral pattern of addiction. So I just started researching psychoactives, mostly illicit psychoactives on the internet when I was around 14, 15 years old. And that's when I really discovered MDMA and, and psilocybin through the site arrowid.org. And just reading anecdote after anecdote after anecdote, you could see a very clear trajectory for some of the, I would say, like truly addictive illicit drugs. And then you could see a very different trajectory for psychedelics. And there's just some light bulb that went on that was just kind of like, there's something about the schedule of controlled drugs and illicit drugs that is not correct. Like, like these drugs don't fit the pattern at all. And they really made me experientially curious because most people reported wonderful times with them. And then even the people that reported not so wonderful times would oftentimes say something at the end of their story like, well, geez, you know, that was like a, a horrific evening. But when I woke up the next morning, I felt more comfortable in my own skin than I ever have before. And it was like, that's really interesting. And um, I don't know. I, I, I tried them in undergraduate. I decided to study pharmacology because that's just what I was already interested in and just researching on the, the Internet as a, as a high school student. But I had the opportunity to take some electives, took uh, electives in Native American religion and world music. And those really kind of set me up for an understanding that psychedelics have been used ritually as entheogens for a very long time. And there was like a very rich anthropologic history around this. And it was apparent that there was some kind of way that drugs could be spiritual, that if you stimulate certain receptors and put a person in a particular type of context, usually a religious or a spiritual context, then there's an extremely high chance that they're going to report well, the, the information I was reading at the time, the kind of anthropologic literature on peyote was called a bona fide religious experience. But today it would be called like the mystical uh, experience defined you know, by the mystical experience questionnaire. They're doing a lot of research at Hopkins. Um, so I would say that, you know, I didn't necessarily go through pharmacy school, et cetera, and work in a pharmacy. And then at some point as an adult, have this kind of like awakening and go over to psychedelics. It was actually more like that was piquing my interest at the beginning of the day. And then I went on this really long, circuitous educational journey and kind of just found like in the year after graduating pharmacy school as a hospital resident that, you know what, this is still the most interesting thing to me. You know, this has been 13 years later or something like that. And I'm still more interested in this topic and these drugs than any of the others. And at this point, I have a doctorate in pharmacy and a master's of public health. And it's 2016, right? I, when I graduated undergrad, it was 2008, right? So there was randomized trials now demonstrating psychedelics have benefit. And a lot of them were pilot studies at that point and things like that. But you could tell that it was coming and that the train had sort of left the station. 
And at that point in time, I was just kind of like, you know what? I Something just clicked and it was just kind of like, this is you. Like, this is you. Like, this is what you've been practicing or training or reading. Like, like all those hours, all that time, like just reading about all of these things so you can put it together for people because they need it right now because it's coming for them, right? In this kind of like medical context. So that's a little bit about my origin story, I guess. Um, and then Spirit Pharmacist was just a really natural outcropping of that because there was basically, uh, I felt a real need to bring an explicit recognition through my brand's name that psychedelics or drugs generally could have a spiritual sort of side or property to them. I think that in pharmacy school, you really only get taught about physiological effects, some cognitive effects, some emotional effects, but I did not hear one professor the entire time say that a drug experience was ever spiritual. You know, this, the psychedelics lectures I got was called hallucinogens of abuse one and hallucinogens of abuse two, right? And at that point in pharmacy school, just even the lectures, I was like, well, that's mistitled. Like, that's not really a very good title. That's not accurate for, you know, what the substance even is. I think like hallucinogen is very pigeonholing. It's like extremely narrow. It's like looking at psychedelics with your blinders on, right? Like the only thing they do is cause some kind of visual hallucination or d distortion, which is, you know, one piece of their, their, their mechanism uh, overall. And then, yeah, abuse. I mean, well, I don't know. You can abuse carrot juice if you really want to, but it's not like it has a high abuse potential. And I think that that's pretty much the same uh, with most types of psychedelics. I don't want to say all because they're different. You know, there's, there's many types out there. Um. Yeah. So, so it was like about bringing this kind of like recognition that drugs could have a spiritual property or, or spiritual effect. That was like one aspect to it. Then the other aspect to it was like I've been studying psychiatric pharmacy and kind of I would say like um, we're really trying to be evidence based in medicine now where you're kind of basing things off of trials and basically like data that's out there in the in the world. Um, but, you know, if it doesn't have an evidence base, then you're not allowed to recommend it was kind of like the the sort of, I would say, like take home. So at the, at the end of the day, I kind of felt that it was more like evidence biased than evidence based, because if, it's, if it was evidence based, you would have to run the trials for every intervention and see that most of them are garbage and then find the ones that really work. And then it would be truly evidence based. But if you've only tested one or two things, and then there's, you know, all of these other things out there that don't have the funding behind it or whatever to create the sort of large trial that the medical community will require to believe that, that it works, um, then I don't know. I just got sick of these algorithms, these like prescribing guidelines that were based on randomized trials that would just basically say, well, this is the answer for everyone. First line. Oh, you got depression? Take an SSRI because that's the evidence-based treatment that, you know, shows that it works on average. And it's kind of like, well, that's sort of an ecologic fallacy in some way to look at a mean reduction in a depression score or something like that across 100 people and then assume that every single person in those 100 people had the same sort of similar outcome. You know, I think probably in reality, it's a little bit more like, uh, I don't know, seven or eight out of 10 don't get very much out of it all. One or two out of 10, it's like wonderful and life-saving. And then one out of two out of 10 have this adverse effect and think it's the the worst thing ever. And then you average it all together. And what it looks like is sort of like weakly efficacious overall, but safe 
first line type of thing. So part of spirit pharmacist is kind of like, well, you know, spirit, I don't know, it's kind of a loaded term, but in some ways it could mean essence, like the distillation of, of something. So instead of thinking of, you know, I'm a pharmacist in the traditional sense of what a pharmacist is now, which is really kind of like a product dispenser for corporate pharmacy in America. I was like, well, I don't think that's the spirit of pharmacy. The spirit of pharmacy is an apothecary, you know, where they, the, the person came in with an ailment and, and told the pharmacist about it and they got listened to. And then the pharmacist went and looked at the products that they have and things like that and concocted something for, for the person. So I'm not concocting psychedelic cocktails for people and things like that quite at this point in time. But I really consider my consulting practice as, okay, I'm dealing with an individual. I'm dealing with a soul here. That soul has a path in this life. And this soul's path is different than any other soul's path in life. And so my job is to listen to them and be a reflective sounding board of what they're telling me, what what their intuition is for the direction that they want to go and try to come up with a reasonable way that they could do it. So spirit pharmacist is kind of like dual meaning. In one hand, it's an explicit recognition that drugs can have a spiritual side to them. And then in other ways, it's like spirit pharmacist. The essence of a pharmacist is is not someone that necessarily, well, I mean, you know the evidence. I keep up with medical literature. I push out a newsletter, you know, that, that summarizes trials and things like so, so it's not like I just threw the baby out with the bathwater per se. Right. But but at the same time, yeah, you're going to make a guideline based on randomized trials and ignore 20 year cohort studies. It's like, wouldn't you want to consider the totality of evidence? And yeah, some of the studies have more flaws to them than others. But yeah, guidelines that are concocted purely off of randomized trials seem way more evidence biased than evidence based to me. And I don't know. I don't have like a nice punchline to that, I guess. (laughs) That that conclusion (laughs) is a little little rambly there, but yeah. No, I think it's beautiful. There was so much in there that I think is is really important. And, and the reason why I really wanted to have a conversation with you, first of all, just the the very nature of the combination of these words, spirit and pharmacist. And I love that you sort of talked about just a you know a, uh, someone a pharmacist today. The pharmacist that we know today is really just uh, the convenience arm or the distribution arm of kind of the. Western medical complex. Um, And the idea that a pharmacist, we can actually take the concept of a pharmacist and and bring spirit back into it. And I think that the, the medical community is moving in that direction in a lot of ways. Like functional medicine is bringing more spirit back into uh, the concept of Western medicine and using, I think functional medicine does a great job of taking real data tests that blood tests and hormone tests and all of that stuff and looking at it from a completely different way than just applying a drug to solve a problem. And I, I kind of like this idea of like a holistic pharmacist uh, that you're usually the pharmacist is just the, the last step in your medical journey. Like they're the ones giving you the pill that are supposed to treat a symptom. But it sounds to me like you're involved in the diagnostic portion. Yeah. So like diagnosis is outside the pharmacist scope of practice, right? So it's like, I can't, like someone can't come to me that has never had any kind of workup or diagnosis. And then I give them a diagnosis. 
can I form a diagnostic impression? Am I trained to do that as a psychiatric pharmacist? Did I spend a lot of time in psychiatric settings doing that? Am I always reverse engineering and looking at the medications and seeing, do they actually match the conditions that the, that the person has? Um, yeah. So really, really it's, it's almost like a misconception around pharmacy. Like pharmacy as a profession is, um, hurting in, in this way, in the, in the, I don't know, like I have a PharmD, it's a doctorate of pharmacy, you know, it's, it's beyond, you're trained beyond the level of just dispensing products to people. And truly, you're a treatment expert, you're a medication expert. So really, it probably should be that the, I mean, the doctor is the diagnostic expert. If there's one job a physician or doctor has is to figure out what's wrong, right? But once they figure out what's wrong and they give that diagnosis, it really should be a meeting of the minds between a physician and a pharmacist about what the treatment looks like, because the pharmacist knows the treatments usually better than the, the doctor. I mean, there's some incredibly smart physicians out there. There's some not so smart pharmacists out there. Right. So it's just grain of salt with like all those kinds of like statements. So I'm not necessarily involved in like a, a diagnosis of something, but I'm always looking for consistency. Right. Like if you're saying that you're depressed and you come to an interview with me and you're talking really fast and there's so much pressure and I can barely even ask a question because the entire time you're talking, I'm going to start getting the impression that this might be like a bipolar kind of like illness. And that's going to wait into my decisions no matter what the intake form says or what, or no matter what else is going on. What, what do you tell me? Um, so, yeah, part of it is like I, I it's, it's truly outside my Skype scope to diagnose, but sometimes I look back and I wonder like, oh, okay, like, why did I go to pharmacy school? And it's like, well, because I loved drugs, because I love starting pharmacology, because that, that, that's what, what was the most like interesting thing to me. And I wasn't so hot on physical examination, blood and guts, procedures, things like that, which is a huge part of medical school. But at the end of the day, who is the physician that does not do deal with blood and guts and diagnoses people by asking questions? And oh, it's the psychiatrist. Right? So uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'm the pharmacist version of a psychiatrist. That would be a, 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 a succinct way of kind of saying where I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to come back to this, but you also have some lived experience uh, using psychedelics uh, and that's not one of the beautiful things about what we're trying to do at Psychedelic IQ is to really merge these ideas of the secular and the sacred. And many people that are coming out of Western, I'm going to say Western medicine, just maybe traditional corporatized medicine might be a better uh, way to think of it. But a lot of folks that are coming, maybe going to school now or coming out of this uh, without any experience uh, with psychedelics are now becoming interested Tell us just a little bit about your, your experience using psychedelics, sacred medicine, whatever word you choose. And without going into a lot of trip report, like how has it affected and maybe improved your ability to do what you do? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, like I kind of discovered psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA through Arrowhead around 15, 16. It probably wasn't like 17 or 18 until I like actually tried something for for the first time and you know i would say like throughout undergraduate once a quarter once every six months i would use something like mushrooms or 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 mdma and it was always just a wonderful sort of time 
I think at that point, um, there were, there was a real sense. It's like most of the times with mushrooms, it was outdoors camping with friends. That was like just the way that you did mushrooms at that point in my, in my life. Um, and then MDMA was usually more like a house party or something like that. But also like MDMA was very helpful in, um, dealing with some social anxiety I had at that time. And I wasn't really even like looking for that. Right. It's not like I was taking MDMA thinking about, so I mean, I don't have any problems. I'm 19 years old, right. There's nothing wrong with me at all. Um, but every time I would take MDMA, it was like the third, fourth time I took it. Maybe I would go around to these house parties and just tell everyone what I really appreciated about them. And then the next day, you know, one of these times I just kind of woke up and I was thinking about it. I was like, why does it do this? Like, like why? Like, like why is it that every time I use this substance, I, I, you know, go around and like gushing all these compliments to people. And eventually it was kind of like, cause you're afraid to without it, you're afraid to, you're afraid of giving a guy a compliment because, um, people might think that you're a homo or something like that. Or you're afraid of giving a girl a compliment because, I don't know, she might think you're flirting with her when you're really, you know, not, not interested in her in that way or something like that. So I was extremely shy and reserved about saying nice things to people out of fear that it just wouldn't land well. And I basically made it a piece of homework <laughs> integration, right, that every time something nice went through my head, my job was to say it out loud whether I was on MDMA or not. Right. And there, there was an ability after that of like, OK, like I can tell a guy, hey, man, I like your shirt. Right. Or, uh, you know, something else like, oh, you got your hair done. That looks nice or something without having to use ecstasy to be to be able to get there. A uh, number of years went by. The trail went cold. I wasn't really doing many psychedelics for a number of years, probably from like 22 to 26, 27 or something like that. But it was probably the last year of pharmacy school or first year of residency. You know, you've been grinding in graduate school for about four years at that point. And if you've ever gone to graduate school, you know, it's a real grind and there's a massive opportunity cost to go to uh, a graduate program in your in your in your 20s. Um, and I was just getting burnt out. I mean, depressed, maybe, but more burnt out than depressed. It's a little bit of a fine line maybe. And I just had a really dear friend that gave me a five by five square of just high quality blotter acid. And I went to the beach once a month for three months and it's like the burnout just went away. Like it just, it just dried it up. And that was the point in my life where I was really like, there's something therapeutic here. You know, it's, it's only been like five, six years since there's experiences in undergraduate but it's affecting me so much differently. I'm thinking about my life so much differently. It's helping me process these kinds of like stuck and accumulated um, emotions and, and, and whatnot. And I don't know, yada, 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 on, on and on. I've tried many different things. You know, I've tried ayahuasca. I've tried 5-MeO-DMT. I've tried ketamine. You know, they, I've done quite a few different psychedelics and Sometimes I get the, oh, which one's your favorite? Which one did the most? And it's kind of like, I don't know. I've used different ones at different stages of my development in different parts of my life. And they all offered something wonderful for that moment or, or that kind of like stage um, overall. So it's like really difficult to kind of say like, oh, this is the one that is the crown jewel of psychedelics for me in my life or, or, or something like that. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that was maybe more cosmic travel log than, than we were, we were, we were hoping for, but, but yeah. I think the, the thing that I really want people to hear that I think you have such a very unique perspective on is that you bring a doctorate in pharmacology, you bring a wealth of your own psychedelic experience and it's come together in this beautiful thing that you have created called spirit pharmacist. And I'm curious now, what would you, how would you encourage those coming from a, maybe a hundred percent spiritual path, maybe coming from a sacred path. They have studied within a lineage. They have teachers that have been practicing in, in, in a lineage for thousands of years. What does science have to offer the sacred? Hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, to me, science is sacred. Like, like there's, it's, and that's, I don't know, maybe that is part of like spirit pharmacists that I didn't really say is like usually science and spirituality is conceived of as this like oil and water kind of mixture where they just like don't go together. Um, but, you know, no, no science is ever going to be complete without an understanding of consciousness. Right. No, like it, just, it just seems to me like, how do you pull it apart? You know, when I kind of think of, ah, oh, gee, science says that there's billions, maybe trillions of galaxies. And it's sort of like, I mean, I get filled with feelings of mystical awe and wonder when I have those kinds of thoughts. And those are inherently spiritual sorts of, of feelings. So I don't really necessarily think of it as like, what does spirit have to offer science or what does science have to offer spirit? I just kind of think that uh, we're all too compartmentalized kind of, kind of overall. And there's a way of these things kind of moving to, to, together. But I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. And these serotonergic psychedelics, they stimulate a serotonin 2A receptor. And that seems like it inherently leads to spiritual types of feelings for people. So I just think that what science offers is potentially a biological construct of what spirituality is or why human beings have spiritual feelings. You know, what the purpose of those feelings are from like an evolutionary kind of perspective. Like, why would it be that human beings have this kind of, yeah, sense of spirit, sense of something greater? Like, like, what, like what would be the advantage of that? You know, I'm sort of thinking in terms of like evolutionary biology, like if, if something's created, it's not random. There's an advantage to it. So what is the advantage? Maybe getting through tough times. You know, if you believe in, in God and you don't have any food for that day or something, you can still say, you know, thank God for this breath. Right. Whereas if you don't believe in God and you have no food, you just sit around cursing all day. <laughs> you know, so so th so there's there's a perhaps a an advantage to believing in something greater to your to yourself or I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that question. It's a very good question. And I don't have an articulate answer. Yeah. I'm going to maybe drill down, maybe help you out a little bit here. No, you mentioned your, <laughs> yeah. your newsletter before. Um, so Ben does, a, I'm not sure exactly how, maybe monthly a newsletter. And I, and I, it's a really great synopsis of a lot of research that's coming out. And I, it really helps me as somebody who's non-scientific to go through and you are picking some of the better studies or more interesting studies that are helping me 
So I'll, I'll give you one example, maybe, and you can see if this resonates. Like, how would you take the research that you're reading and help someone better create an integration process for somebody coming out of a psychedelic experience? Like if we are looking at brain scans and neuroplasticity and how long some of that stuff is happening, how could you change something that might be very sacred and unscientific, but possibly improve upon it Yeah, using some of the medical research? There's a few aspects. Yeah, maybe there's uh, from the spiritual practitioner's perspective, maybe they're almost like hyper-focused on subjective experience. Like everything is about the psychedelic experience. And then you have science over here that's like, wait a minute, these drugs cause neuroplasticity. There's, you know, neurogenesis or, you know, dendritogenesis in certain areas of the cortex. And these areas of the cortex seem to be linked with psychiatric illnesses and, and things of that nature. So maybe it's the neuroplasticity. Maybe we'll engineer a drug that's neuroplastic that doesn't have the, the subjective effect of a psychedelic blasphemy. Ah, how dare you even <laughs> suggest that that's an experiment that we could try. And it's kind of like, okay, well, the thing that pisses me off the most about prohibition is that you're not allowed to ask legitimate scientific questions and get answers to them. So now that we're allowed to ask questions and get answers to them, like what part of the psychedelic experience is mediated by subjective effects and what part is neuroplasticity? I say, let the scientists go to town on that kind of, of question, because it does seem that the neuroplasticity is important. And I don't know, I don't want to weight it as 50% neuroplasticity and 50% subjective experience, because I don't think we have that kind of information. But yeah, what do you do afterwards? Is there some way of taking this neuroplasticity and introducing you know, neurofeedback or like biofeedback kind of thing so that when you have the big resetting sort of effect and the person is in this just very relaxed, maybe default state of their nervous system, how are they going to learn to stay there instead of going kind of shifting back towards the baseline as the same pieces of their life are there? Stresses, cues, persons, places, things, things like that. You know, they're going to get triggered. Those feelings are going to get triggered. And how are they going to come back to the place where everything was all perfect after their their psychedelic sort of, of experience. So yeah, I think that there are ways of of kind of harnessing or leveraging the the neuroplasticity. There's a lot of discussion about like integration therapy, like kind of talking about the experience. But I did see one randomized trial that randomized people to computer program, a self-association program. And it was a very, very simple sort of program. Um, that they did 15 minutes twice a day for three days after a ketamine infusion. And they compared that with a sham training. So they spent the same amount of time doing something, but it wasn't the the self-association training. And I mean, it's really simple stuff. Like you submit pictures of yourself and then it shows pictures of you smiling with words like lovable and deserving and worthy. And then it alternates with pictures of strangers smiling. This is the self-association training. That self-association training increased the antidepressant benefit of ketamine from the average three to seven days to 30 days. Wow. Right. And it's sort of like, okay, that's a computer program. Am I saying that I believe that 
we can get rid of the integration therapist and just substitute a robot that like strokes your head and tells you everything's okay. And that's going to have the same effect as a human being involved in the process. I kind of doubt it. But, you know, if you're just all in on this, it has to be therapy type of perspective, then you're probably missing some other things that might be, you know, inexpensive, highly disseminable. The person could do this at home after their own mushroom experience if they wanted to. And it might have some pretty solid effect or benefit from them. The very least is probably not going to be harmful and it's not going to consume a lot of their time. So, so maybe that's it. Yeah. Thanks for the hint. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. No, and that's, yeah. and, and I'm, you, uh, I know that you, the amount of uh, research that you do on a regular basis and you're looking at all of these studies, which I had not even heard of this, but it's, now it's kind of blowing my mind because there's another, there's a founder I operate in the tech world a lot. And there's a founder who contacted me and said, Hey, we're trying to build this AI empowered system to help psychedelic guides. And even my first reaction was, Nope, not interested. Why would I want to do that? And when I hear this one thing about this potential, like 15 minutes a day, three times a day improves your ketamine experience from seven days to 30 days. I'm like, well, crap. Like here is one opportunity where AI, even a simple system like the one that you referred to can definitively improve somebody's experience after the journey. And when I think about the very traditional sacred circles that I sit in, my teachers from Peru, the other individuals that I have sat with, tr let's call them maybe uh, traveling corenderos. You come in or people that are doing work at retreat centers, you come in, you have this really three days of powerful experiences with ayahuasca or wachuma. And then the, the medicine carrier leaves. And unless that individual has found a way to integrate their experience, the Cordendero is not really responsible for helping you integrate. So it's really a requirement for the individual to find some way to do that on their own. And if integration coaches, integration therapists can start using more of this research that's coming out, even coming from a sacred perspective, I think we can help people more by integrating uh, both of these two worlds together. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's not mutually exclusive, right? Because I think a lot of integration therapists, integration coaches, I mean, they have activities, worksheets, journaling exercises, prompts. Like it's not like the only thing that is involved in integration is talking to somebody about what happened in my uh, experience. A lot of it is this kind of practical boots on the ground stuff. So yeah, why isn't self-association training just a standard part of the integration therapist or coaches toolkit? This was a single randomized trial, I will say. And it's like, usually you want, usually you want to do it twice before you really say like, definitively, this is the, but it was pretty good. The, the numbers were good. They had a, they had a good number of people in it and the difference was stark. Yeah. It, it points us in a direction. Obviously more research is going to be better research, but as sacred practitioners, what's wrong with letting the scientists do their sciencey things and then taking the best of that and integrating it to the best of our ability uh, in our practices. Yeah, I have a one of my favorite. I don't know. He's my like favorite ayahuasquero. Um, he comes from a traditional Chinese medicine background, and he was like an acupuncturist for a very, very long time. But what I love about the way he serves ayahuasca is he he serves us from this like. I mean, gosh. I mean, has he? gone to Peru and does he know the spiritual side of it and things? Absolutely. You know, as he started studied spiritual texts, you know, 
reading Buddhist texts on the banks of the Ganges. Yeah, like he's done all of that, but he's also very grounded in science. And, you know, we'll say stuff like, you know, well, if the master acupuncturists for 500 years ago were alive today, they would say to the current acupuncturist, why the hell are you not using ultrasound? It's like, it's kind of like, uh, okay, like there's, there's the old ways. They're important. Let's not forget about that. Right. There's, there's a spiritual side of it, but there's a way of marrying it with new information and technology that only improves things rather than, you know, defaces it or that kind of ideology that you do sometimes encounter in alternative medicine. Yeah. I think we've done a really good job of bridging the, maybe the gap between the sacred and the secular. I'm going to shift conversation a little bit more into maybe some of your specialty is related to pharmaceuticals and drug interactions and, and stuff like that. And really basic question, not knowing, like we're talking to people that might be interested in becoming a guide, a facilitator. We might be talking to people that have a great deal of experience. We don't really know, but why is knowing your client's medical history and maybe more importantly, their the current pharmaceuticals that they're ingesting or just drug history. Why is it important? Well, I think like the history of a person, I mean, it's what they're bringing to the situation, you know, so it's their circumstance. You know, if you're thinking about set and setting, I mean, hey, that person showing up, that's their circumstance. Like that is a part of, of set and setting and all the medications, supplements, recreational things, that they have relationships with their life, food, like all the stuff kind of like factors into what kind of experience that they're, they're going to have overall. Um, and yeah, like you said, there's, there's a lot of people that are operating with different levels of experience and different ideas about what psychedelics are and what psychedelics should be. Uh, for example, you have the medical context, like the medical kind of like paradigm of psychedelic assisted therapy uh, you have a, I would say, uh, religious kind of, of, of context or, or group that are, you know, championing psychedelics on the platform of religious freedom and basically saying that, you know, the Controlled Substance Act should not interfere with one's uh, ability to use a, 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 a sacrament. And then you have, I would say, like um, decriminalized kinds of, of movements, like like persons that believe that psychedelics should just be available, particularly probably botanically based ones or naturally uh, uh, occurring ones. Um, so you have different, I would say, outlets for using psychedelics available. And then you have a variety of different people that are coming to those sorts of outlets, right? So I think like part of knowing a person's medical history and you know medication history and things like that is helping them to evaluate whether the outlet that they're looking at is really a good match for them um, overall. And if they're, you know, there's risks that they're bringing to that situation or things that we should do to mitigate risk or strategies that we need to employ just to even have them have an experience in the first place. Because some of these pharmaceutical types of medications either make psychedelics dangerous, but probably more commonly as they tend to blunt or diminish some of the at least the subjective properties and potentially some of the neuroplastic effects, depending on which uh, psychiatric medications you're, you're talking about um, uh, as well. So, yeah, I mean, oh, they're studying psilocybin for depression. 
okay, well, you know, there's kind of, I would call, say there's vanilla garden variety, mild to moderate depression associated with just a little bit of work-life imbalance and difficult family stuff and things like that. And they're on one medication or not on medication even. It's kind of like, yeah, I think that person could probably go a psycho-spiritual kind of like route for their healing and use a retreat center. And that's just going to be fine for them, right? Versus someone else with depression that has three medications and two of them are kind of at the max doses and probably do either introduce risks or blunt the effects. And they have been to a psychiatric hospital because they've, uh, you know, attempted suicide a couple of times. And uh, they did some electroconvulsive therapy a couple of years ago. And, and you kind of get the sense that it's like, man, this is a really severe type of illness overall. And yeah, maybe there really should be some more medical handholding. Like maybe there really should be uh, a context or a set and setting that has personnel that are trained in recognizing risk factors or signs of a person's thinking about hurting themselves and knowing what to do as far as a, a, a response goes. So I think that, yeah, there's like the, the drug interaction piece of it. But, you know, exactly. There's there's lots of legitimate reasons why people are interested in psychedelics. And personally, I think that all of these things should be allowed. Like it's, I don't come from the angle of just, oh, well, psychedelic assisted therapies where it's at everything else is, you know, all those guys are spiritual charlatans or something like It's like, no, no, not at all. You know, these, these are the people that have actually been doing it for the last 20 years and believed in it and knew that it worked, you know, before you even heard of it and decided to run your first trial. You know, it's like, these are the OGs actually, right? <laughs> Rather than the kind of like, new kid on the block, but I've got all the technology and safeguards and things. And they probably are set up to, you know, handle more severe kinds of like cases and symptoms and follow them in their process, right? Because exactly these traveling curanderos, it's kind of you serve someone something and it's a few weeks later and they're kind of spiraling for whatever reason. It's kind of like, yeah, probably the traveling curandero is not the support system that person needs. Like they need a different support system. I think that what you just shared is such a great way to look at this from a practitioner's perspective in, in regarding this like big scale. Like on one side of the scale, you have people that are not taking meds. They haven't had suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideations. They are just like looking for a better way to live their life. And then you have way over here on this other side, you, you know, you talked about electroconvulsive shock therapy. You talked about the number of meds, the dosages that they're on, each one of those meds, the previous treatments that they've had, their medical history. Like all of this shows up on this really complicated scale. And the farther to one side of that complicated scale it goes, the more potential negative outcomes that or potential like things that we have to look out for an individual, a guide, a, a facilitator has to pay attention to. But if you're not asking those questions, if you don't get any of that information as a facilitator, you have no idea what handing somebody a gram of mushrooms or a tab of LSD might bring up. There's, there's almost like, like I'll talk like, cause everyone wants to, I'm going to go drink ayahuasca. I'm taking medication X. 
how long do I have to stop it for? Or can I take that there? Right. The, the center said that they don't take people taking this medication. Is it really a contraindicated thing? And it's like, well, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I'm kind of kind of thinking more like, okay, well, I mean, there's there's the science answer. Okay, you're taking amphetamine, it's out of your system in 72 hours. No, 72 hours is the time frame that you could use amphetamine prior to ayahuasca and not have a hypertensive crisis or be worried about hemorrhagic stroke or something like that, right? But I would never blame a center for saying, oh, we don't take people that have used amphetamines in the last 10 days or two weeks, right? Because they're kind of thinking, hey, we are a uh, psycho-spiritual organization. We deliver spiritual experiences. We're not here to, you know, manage psychiatric illnesses and we're not here to treat stimulant use disorders. So we have a more stringent or conservative kind of criteria around who we let into our ceremonies. And it's not 100% based on what the absolute minimum time frame is from a physiological angle, which is more or less going to be my answer a lot of the time. It's going to be kind of like, well, this is what you can do. Whether you should do that or whether it's optimal or whether the center that you're looking at philosophically would agree with me, that's a different question. And they're very much entitled to have their ideas about those sorts of things, particularly at this point in time where it is a little bit of Wild West and there's not a whole lot of wonderful data demonstrating the outcomes of persons that have these illnesses that do do short breaks and then have these experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you would help people better screen, whether it's a retreat center, an individual practicing. How do you recommend or could help people better screen clients? Yeah. So I think like just a comprehensive intake form, even if it's a lot of questions and people complain about it or something like that, is it is a very good idea. I think you really want to understand who the person is. Yeah, like like not okay. Medical illnesses, psychiatric illnesses, crisis like suicidality or, or hospitalizations, you know, a relationship with different types of like recreational substances. Oh, okay, that's that's really, really, really wonderful start. But kind of like, why why do they want to do this? What position do they occupy in in life? You know, are they uh, with a family and having a family or not? You know, are they, you know, really coming to this at age of 63 because they're depressed or it's because they plan on retiring when they're 65 and they're looking forward as far as like, what is the next chapter? How do I want to spend those years? I know I don't want to just sit in my armchair. Like there's got to be something else. Like, and I want to figure out what that stuff is now. And what I, yeah, what I really heard was it's not just about the meds that you're taking. It can like one of the questions that I frequently ask is what kind of support system do you will you be going back into and how open is that support system to you having a psychedelic experience? Because if you have this really powerful experience and you go back to a loving family that completely disagrees with said experience, now there's a big dissonance in your family that you're going to have to go find new support systems. So I think it what you just said speaks to broadening your idea of intake to a more psycho-spiritual level. In the psychiatric medications, there are quite a few that probably have like significant interaction potential. 
But man, outside of like CNS active types of things, there might be some other stuff that's just yet to be uncovered or something like that. But I highly doubt we're going to find some bogeyman in the closet where it's causing all sorts of horrible adverse things that we don't really have like some kind of inkling does that does that already. But I would say like a lot of the time, it's probably like one of the biggest misunderstandings about spirit pharmacists is that I'm just a drug interaction checker. And it's just sort of like, is this drug a contraindication? It's like, first of all, contraindication is a very strong word. It literally means like avoid the type of like thing. Whereas I'm kind of thinking, okay, like, does it introduce some level of risk is probably like much more common than it's contraindicated like per se. And then a lot of the time I'm just looking at a medication as a surrogate marker that a person has an illness. Okay, I've got my blood pressure med and cholesterol med and baby aspirin. Are those drugs contraindicated? That's the most common like question I would get. And I was like, oh, none of those drugs are contraindicated, but collectively they look like a post-stroke regimen. And that would be a contraindication. Like, what is this person's cardiovascular history? Like, that's the elephant in the room question, not does these drugs interact with the psychedelic? I mean, the person asking, you know, I'll never fault them. Like they, they don't know what interacts and what doesn't like that. That's why they're coming to me. Right. So it's, it's sort of like, it's not like they get beat up over the way they ask the question, but I'm always trying to answer in a more like comprehensive kind of way. Cause I could just type yep, no contraindication there. Okay. But you didn't mention that they were 79 years old and did have a transient ischemic attack last year. And you know, so, so it's sort of like, I feel like it's my responsibility as the person that knows this kind of stuff to kind of almost like push back or kind of give them like a few questions deeper as far as the answer rather than just like the the answer to what they technically asked. Yeah, I'm going to save. I got a question right after this, but I want to go back to something that you mentioned before and then we're going to loop back. You You said there's sort of three categories or at least three categories, like there are meds that might be dangerous. There are meds that might be blunting in effects. And then you even talked about something that might like reduce neuroplasticity. And I'm not sure if you're even willing to like, go down this path or give us some general guidelines. But if you took a health questionnaire and as a, as a practitioner, you were looking at somebody's health, health questionnaire and looking at the meds that they were on or have been recently off of, like, what would you consider dangerous meds if we're just looking really high level even classes or specific types if you're even willing to give us a hint oh uh, well i would say like it, it probably depends on the type of psychedelic that you're using but the ones that like really come up to for me are probably like things like lithium uh it's a it's a mood stabilizer type of chemical element and it seems to make serotonergic psychedelics dangerous it tends to increase the risk of seizures or just a really really negative quality of experience overall so that one i would say like with serotonergic psychedelics like yeah possible danger i think the atypical antipsychotics because they usually indicate some kind of refractory illness bipolar illness or psychotic illness and they tend to directly oppose the mechanisms of serotonergic psychedelics so in some ways an atypical antipsychotic you're almost like, okay, it could be contraindicated because it interferes with a psychedelic. It could be contraindicated because of the illness that's being treated. So, so sometimes I would say in the realm of mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, there's almost a potential for like a double contraindication based upon the medication they're using and the underlying illness that that medication is, is treating. You know, I'll say like benzodiazepines are probably 
I don't know, like like SSRIs. Ah, uh, seems like they're they're probably more counterproductive for serotonergic psychedelics than 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 helpful. It seems like some of them, at least for some people, can still kind of like shine through that. Um, but really, okay, SSRIs are compatible with ketamine, so it's like okay, you you at least still have like a, a solid option that will one hundred percent work if you're on an SSRI. But once you get on a daily dose of a benzodiazepine that's not in the low range, right, kind of like moderate to high dose kinds of ranges, I mean, man, they diminish subjective effects of serotonergic psychedelics, they diminish subjective effects of ketamine. And they, you know, facilitate GABA neurotransmission. And there are GABA interneurons that feed directly upon the cortex. So I think like when I say like, oh, some of them might be um, limiting neuroplasticity, like I particularly suspect benzodiazepines to the point where it's like a big question in my mind now as far as like, okay, if someone was to hold a benzodiazepine for a tolerable amount of time around a psychedelic experience. We're not going to hold it too long because you go into a bad withdrawal and that's not going to be helpful for set and setting. But it used to kind of be like, okay, if a person can hold clonazepam for 72 hours without going into withdrawal, okay, we'll do two days ahead of time. Then the day of the experience, they can restart it afterwards. At this point in time, I'm a little bit more like, well, let's do the day before the day of the experience and the day afterwards. Because I because I don't want to throw a wet blanket on the neuroplasticity the very next day, right? Um, so with benzodiazepines, I think the jury's out as far as like exactly what doses and how much they diminish effects. And for the most part, I think most people that are taking benzodiazepines probably still can get at least something out of out of psychedelics. But I've I've started to kind of come to the opinion that uh, yeah, particularly moderate to high dose daily benzodiazepine use might be the worst enemy of all psychedelics as far as like having a potent experience and then having the transformation that you really want. Like the neuroplasticity, I think is important for that piece of it too. Yeah. So if you have a client that comes to you, like maybe they're working with a psychiatrist, they already have their physician, they're being prescribed one to three to four different meds. And this client is saying, hey, I want to have an experience with ayahuasca or or whatever. Take your pick. Maybe not ketamine in this case. And you have a practitioner who doesn't really know anything about this. They're not with the same experience. And what would you tell somebody in that role that has a client that says, hey, I I want to get off all of my meds and I want to have the psychedelic experience? What would your advice be to that practitioner to then tell the client, we don't want to be... We don't want to turn into pharmacists. We don't want to turn into doctors. How do you recommend the client begin working with their practitioners? What helpful advice could you have a client, could you give to a client to help them get off of those meds? Yeah. So, so if a person wanted to have a conversation with their, let's say, prescriber around, you know, discontinuing medications, you're taking more than one, I probably wouldn't go into the office and say something like, I just want to get off my meds, right? Or I just want to get off my meds to use psychedelics. Um, Because I think that those two things typically make them think, oh, we're headed for like a crisis, a spiral of decompensation. And they're typically opposed to it because they just anticipate like, okay, this is going to cause a lot of emotional turbulence. That's going to make my workload increase. The person's not going to be feeling good. We're risking a bad outcome. 
right? So I think a lot of providers are usually almost like encouraging counseling. Like, why would you want to stop that? Like, why don't we just keep going with it? Everything's okay, right? Like, do you really need to step off of that kind of like thing? So you might get pushback anyway, right? But I think you'll get a lot of pushback if you come in and the sort of like opener is, I just want to stop these or I just want to get off of these, right? Um, so I think that uh, having a different sort of like approach or, or conversation, uh, explaining the reasons why you want to get off of it at the, at the get-go, kind of like, um, I don't know, if you, have a, if you have a provider or practitioner that you suspect is open to a conversation about psychedelics, I really do encourage you just to be honest about that, right, and not be really like deceitful. But if you can't or you know or you're about to face a lot of judgment and that kind of thing, then you can still say something along the lines of, you know, I've been taking this antidepressant now for the last like eight or nine years. And, man, I remember when it started, when I was going through that really rough patch where with my you know work and I had a toxic boss at the time. And I remember it was really helpful when it when it started. But at this point in time, I can't really tell what it's doing that much anymore. And my life has really shifted a lot. I'm not in that position anymore. Um, you know, I've been talking with a therapist that's been kind of kind of helpful. And, you know, to be honest with you, Doc, it's ruining my sex life. You know, I'm having issues with with intimacy. And I am interested in trying to start a taper process and see how far I can get and maybe even stopping the med. And I think if you sort of like come to it as in like, well, I acknowledge it was helpful, but my situation has changed. Okay. And I'm questioning the efficacy. Well, that's like one reason why a doctor might want to initiate a taper. But the other reason is they're not tolerating it good or they're having side effects. So if you come to a doctor and say, it's not working good and it's causing me side effects and they're not open to changing it, you probably should be shopping for a new doctor at that point in, in time, right? Because it's sort of like they're not hearing you. Right? They're not hearing that this is not working and it's causing a problem for me. And so, so, so sometimes instead of I just want to get off of them, which kind of sounds like you're just going to flush them down the toilet or something like that to the to the doctor, that makes them very, very scared. But if you kind of come and, you know, maybe there's a lower dose that would still work for me that wouldn't give me this bothersome side effect. Do you think I could decrease it to see how I do and if the side effect kind of dries up a little bit? Right. Or, you know, I'm just interested in living life without, oh, you, you really, really need this. Why? That would be my next, why? Why do I really, really need it? Is it because I've been suicidal and I've gone to the hospital? Oh, no, I've never had any, either of those things. So what is the rationale for continuing it for all time? Is it indicated? Yeah, I, don't know. I would start giving pushback and being a little cheeky at some <laughs> point, I guess. But <laughs> right. But 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 I think that this is it is like a lot of the time it's like, oh, well, you need this. And they say, oh, OK. But I think like fishing for the rationale, like like pushing the clinician to give you a real rationale for why they do or don't want to to do something is an important piece of it. And it's a piece that like the, the person or patient like deserves to hear, too. Yeah, I hear like sort of becoming your own like nuanced advocate. You know where you're going and while it might be while it might feel a little like. I wouldn't even use the word manipulation. I think it'd be you're, you're moving towards your own desired health outcome, but you're right. I think when we walk into a provider and if we're on multiple meds and we say like, hey, I'm going to go to Costa Rica and I'm going to have this really powerful ayahuasca experience. So I need you to help me get off my meds. 
the first reaction for, from that specialist, from that psychiatrist is probably going to be one of pushback because it's probably in their nature. It's in some ways, it's how they've been trained. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, frankly, as a psychiatric pharmacist, when you work in an inpatient psychiatric unit, you see lots of people in there because their medications were stopped. And it's not always their fault. Sometimes they get evicted. Sometimes they can't afford it. Sometimes they're lost. Sometimes they're stolen if they're controlled substances. Like, you know, it's not like they just independently decide to stop it and we just need to like point a finger and like blame a person. But I've seen some a lot of not good outcomes from abruptly stopping medications. And I understand why it makes them nervous when they hear that kind of thing. But I still believe people, you know, I'm a cognitive libertarian, like, like before anything, I just think that people should be able to decide what goes in their body and what head spaces they occupy. And, you know, as I don't know, mental health doctors or psychiatrists or psychiatric pharmacists, I think our job is to listen to people and to help them, navigate that in the way that they want to navigate it instead of what does the guideline say or what does the guideline don't say because nowhere in the guideline does it say that if you have mild to moderate depression you've never been to a psych ward you don't have suicidal thoughts that you need to be on antidepressants for all time that is not written in the guidelines anywhere but that's something that seems to be a popular opinion amongst lots of doctors well tell me what tell me what you do tell me what spirit pharmacist does and and even Expanding upon that, how, what's the best way, the most effective way to engage with somebody like you to get the most out of an experience, either as a client or a practitioner? Yeah. So I like to tell people I do three things. And the third thing is a combination of one and two, right? So <laughs> I do psychopharmacology consulting. So like one-on-one -on -one type of consulting, and I'll do it with clients, patients, individuals, you know, coaches therapists, physicians, psychiatrists, like I consult with a, a, a really wide variety of, of, of persons. And then I do psychedelic education. And I tend to focus on kind of the nexus of psychiatric medications and psychedelics, but sometimes just purely psychedelic pharmacology, nuts and bolts. What does this drug do? How is it broken down? Like, like those kinds of, of, of things. Um, I have courses in psychedelic pharmacology. I have one in antidepressant tapering. Also, I've been doing monthly webinars this year. Um, I have a blog page that also has some just good blog articles and freebie downloads and, and things like that. So I really try to make, I would say, like tiers of information that are just accessible no matter like who you are. Um, and I really try to focus on like, oh, what do I put in a free blog? Well, lithium and psychedelics, because I think that's dangerous, right? Like I, like I try to think like, okay, like, you know, I don't think having, you know, an article about how this drug is dangerous with psychedelics, like I don't understand how you can even ethically have it behind a paywall. You know what I mean? I just think that that is information that is crucial for people to understand. It's not some nuanced stuff about their SSRI mushrooms or something, or it's kind of like, okay, like it's not going to kill them if they try. It just may not work out quite as optimally, things like that. So that's one and two. Well, I guess like, uh, like on number two, we've, we've talked about the newsletter a little bit. So I have, a, I have an email list and every single month I comb through medical literature and Medline or like PubMed and just hand select like six or seven articles to, to, to summarize. So I give like, I like to think it's concise, but it depends who you ask, kind of update on what happened in psychedelic science in the last month. 
from a clinician angle. So I like usually focus on clinical trials. Like I don't focus on industry very much. Um, it's very rare that I focus on preclinical stuff like rodent or like Petri dish types of experiments. Every now and again, there's just a really, really big one in cell or nature or something like that. Um, I like to focus on like case series or case reports, right? Cause I'm much more interested in well, what happened when this person in this illness tried this rather than how much did the rat's head twitch when we gave them this new compound or something like that. So the third thing is the member program, which hybridizes the psychopharmacology consulting I do with, uh, with the education. So the member program is a subscription based program. And, you know, you can buy any course I have separately, but if you're on the member program as a subscription, you just get a library of all the courses and webinars and drug information guides I have. So it's basically like a one-stop shop for absolutely like all the resources that I've really ever, ever produced around psychedelics and psychiatric meds. Um, but includes with a subscription includes a drug information service. So we'll do email based question and answer. So maybe persons have intake forms or medications, things like that, that they would like me to look at or have questions about. We could do that through email Q and A. It's like part of the subscription. Um, also do uh, voice messages through encrypted apps. So like WhatsApp or like signal. So there can be like a little bit of asynchronous uh, dialogue if, if we need to do it that way. And then the member program also features discounted rates on individual consulting. So I think a lot of providers, facilitators, physicians, retreat center organizations that are in the member program will use the subscription based email Q&A to get some kind of like preliminary or like general answers. And then depending on what those answers are, they may really want to have the person come and like see me and like drill down and like really talk about it for an hour. Because a lot of the times it's like, well, it depends on what the person wants to do. It depends on how they tolerate those medications. It might depend on how easy tapering is for them. Some people, it's not that big of a deal. And some people, it's a very, very big deal. Um, so a lot of the times, there's kind of like a generic informational answer. But the deeper answer is based upon that individual and their circumstance and what their goals are, rather than there's just some sort of cookie cutter answer that's going to be good for absolutely everyone. I mean, I guess there are some, right? The absolute contraindications, the true black and whites, but most everything is a shade of gray. Yeah. No, and I can, speaking from personal experience and getting a chance to work with you even recently, the had a client come to me with a pretty, a fairly complicated mix of medications, but with a desire to have a psychedelic experience, uh, in this case, using mushrooms, but they had already self-experimented and realized that they were going to have no effect based on the meds that they were taking. The, the blunting effect of the meds was almost impossible. There were other medications because of their, their work and another condition that they really couldn't go off of because of some, some tremors that they were experiencing. And after a pretty like in-depth conversation, we realized that, well, Maybe instead of just going and doing ketamine in a very unassisted, unsupportive way, that ketamine could be tried again with some additional support, doing more of the integration work and the preparation work. And the client's already getting positive benefits out of that with an, a, with an experience of now beginning to taper some of the other meds with an intention later on to try uh, another psychedelic, be that you know, ayahuasca, be that uh, mushrooms. So I think that there is, there is so much nuance and so many opportunities 
that we have as practitioners when we can engage somebody that really understands the bigger picture. And I, and I was just really appreciative of the, the ideas, the idea formulation and building a bigger plan that just wasn't a yes or no answer that says, sorry, you can't do this substance because of this medication. It was much more um, nuanced conversation. Well, I found that just like if you get to the dead end, right, if you just get to a dead end for them, I, I think it incentivizes them to go rogue and just do something outside of safe sets and settings and things like that. And it's a really big conundrum, actually, I think, for bipolar conditions, because I think a lot of persons are on this, I would say, like mild, like bipolar two kind of spectrum. And they probably are decent candidates. I'm waiting for some more data, but I think that they're probably decent candidates overall. But a lot of the time it's just eh, 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 as soon as you hear the, the bipolar diagnosis and then you know, people will come to me and it's like, so what do you think I should do? Should I just lie on my intake form? Or do you think I should just try it at home now? Because no one else will do it. So, I mean, I guess I just have to eat a handful and see how it goes. Right. And it's sort of like, geez, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's a conundrum because in some ways, okay, they're, they're higher risk. So I, I don't necessarily like blame a practitioner for very, being very, very cautious at this point in time. On the other hand, always saying no to someone when they're looking for the outlet or looking for the way forward is probably going to incentivize them to do something outside of what is maybe safe. And then if we get a poor outcome, it's just going to be, I told you so. And it's just sort of like, no, that's, that's, that's not quite, a, it's not quite right. Actually, it's because we didn't give them an opportunity to heal in safe sets and settings between me and you and from a completely non-data uh, perspective, I think bipolar type 2 is probably one of the most often used uh, potentially blanket diagnoses that I see in all of the people that I talk to, which which is unfortunate. And there's a lot of flexibility and opportunity to work within that diagnosis, depending on what the the medical history really is. I think that's it. It's like the history is more important than the label. Like the, the, and that's why, okay, it's outside my scope to diagnose. Does that make my work suffer? No, not at all. Because I'm trying to figure out like, I'm like, okay, the labels are one piece of information to consider, but it's not like you get the label and that's the answer. That's what's going on. Right. Sometimes it is very much accurate and sometimes, you know, it's flip flopped and it's changed and they've matured and they beat an addiction and they're just very, very different than the time they got those labels and they don't seem to fit very good. And there's other people in their life that are suspecting the labels don't fit them well anymore. And yeah, was well, uh kind of last question. Anything fun that uh, you're working on these days? Yeah. So I am. Well, first of all, I'm producing the clinical pharmacology of psychedelics. That's probably like my biggest like pet project for for this year. It's part of my master series. So I have like a foundation of psychedelic pharmacology. It's like a basic neuropharmacology course. So it's just teaching you about neuropharmacology, but it uses psychedelics as all the examples. Then I have psychedelic pharmacology by substance, which t which tries to basically break down uh, seven, maybe nine of the most commonly used psychedelics um, in a very systematic sort of fashion. So this is the mechanism, this is the metabolism, this is the toxicology, these are the clinical studies, 
because every drug, once it gets approved, like like the government's going to require the manufacturer to create like a package insert or prescribing information that has this. So I'm sort of trying to compile a presentation of what I can find around those things a little bit ahead of time. And then the clinical pharmacology of psychedelics is going to be way more all the stuff that we've been talking about in this interview, like the screening, the drug interactions, like just the application um, based thing. So that's probably like my big personal project for the year. But I'm really excited and stoked to be kind of being embedded and ingrained in a lot of different psychedelic training or facilitation types of, of programs. And those are always really exciting opportunities for me because it makes me feel very good to be part of like a faculty that's greater than myself. There's something about just having your own website and your own platform that gets a little egocentric after some period of time. So it's like really nice to be kind of out there uh, helping with other people's efforts. I'm doing a little bit of writing. So I'm helping Jonathan Dickinson. He wrote um, or, you know, him and a team of people wrote the kind of original set of ibogaine based clinical guidelines. So we're working on an update on, on that piece of it. Yeah, there's probably like a bunch of great things that I'll remember as soon as the, the podcast ends. But we can put them all in the show notes. If there's anything that you forgot, just uh, send them over and we will uh, we'll put it all in the show notes. Yeah, I would say like March and April were just bananas months for the consult service. And then May became like much more manageable. So, yeah, I'm trying to almost like focus more on like writing and like project based work while I can. Well, I can tell you that from from a person who came very much from a spiritual, sacred perspective and tradition. About two or three years ago, I met a neurobiologist who was doing brain studies with individuals. They were literally putting people in fMRI machines at the peak of their experience and watching what was happening. And, and my first thought was, oh my God, like five grams, 25 milligrams of psilocybin inside of an MRI machine at the peak of my experience sounds absolutely horrible. But what I found out was that it would it produced in some cases it produced very much like a womb like sensation for individuals, mm. and they had been they had been scanned like twenty times before they got to the experience, and then they were scanned a number of times after. And when I sat down and had my first conversation with this PhD pharmacist, neurobiologist, psychiatrist, rather, I had. So the scientific nature and how they were removing the sacred from psychedelics. And what I have found now over the course of a couple of years and getting to know him more and being able to use some of the research that people like you are gathering and compiling and helping people like me understand, there's just so much benefit to being able to combine the two. And I just want to thank you from, from my perspective and for those other people that you're helping that I really appreciate somebody who is also straddling the the line between the sacred and the spiritual or the sacred and the and the uh, secular. So you have a question or time for three quick speed round questions? Sure. I don't know if I, I speedy answers. I don't know if those are my forte, but I'll do my best. Why do you do the work? It's my purpose, man. Like I like I like I said, it's just I don't know why I was interested in this stuff or. I don't know. Was I chosen? I don't know. But it just feels like what I'm supposed to do. That's why. What's the most important thing this work has taught you personally? The consulting work has been a really big personal growth journey in getting out of a yes man workaholic place and putting myself in a place that serves people 
in a very rewarding way that has like clear boundaries to it. Been a big lesson the last couple of years, huge, just huge. Can't really explain it in a short way, but yeah, it's been, I'd say like the, the entrepreneurial journey is a spiritual journey. It's a personal growth journey is all I have to say. And it's so much different than, you know, being locked in with an employer and things like that. Yeah. And the last question from your professional perspective, your professional as a somebody coming from the medical and also the psychedelic world, if there was something that you could tell or say to somebody new coming into the field of guiding and facilitating and whatever that kind of word is that they use, if there's one or two things that you could tell them with your professional experience, what would it be? Psychedelic is a misnomer. They're not mind manifesting. They're psychosomatodelics. It's a mind-body experience. The body speaks. The body acts, right? Listen to the body when you're using psychedelics. Don't be all paying attention to only what's happening inside your head. Beautiful. Ben, thanks so much for your time today. I uh, really appreciate it. And I have no doubt that we'll do this again. We'll, t- we'll take like one class of drugs and we'll just... We'll dive in whatever, uh, whatever information you can offer us. I can't wait to see some of the new research on the site. I'm a member of the site. Uh, it has been an incredibly beneficial for me to have a resource that is also understandable. I can't, it's really hard for me to go to PubMed and to, to get through an entire research paper, but I find the newsletter that you produce is very understandable and it's not too verbose. So if that makes you feel any better. Thank you so much, GV. It's been wonderful being on the Psychedelic IQ podcast, and I can't wait to come back again. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, Please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks. Have a great day. And remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.